Good morning, everyone. My name is Todd, one of the elders here, and for those of you who don't know me, I have a wife and seven kids, so every Sunday morning is just getting here is a win. <laughs> the fact that I'm here at all and I have pants on is <laughs> a win. I'm just like, I can't believe it. We did it again. And every Sunday morning, we get in the, in the van, and we started a tradition. Every Sunday morning, we get in the van, the big 15-passenger <laughs> van, and we get in there, and we, we start off, we start up the, the Kraken, which we've affectionately named our large uh, beast of a vehicle, and we start it up, and we say, where are we going? To church. Why do we go to church? Where are we going? We're going to church, and why do we go to church? To worship our God with our people. That's why we're here, right? That's why you got out of bed today. That's why you braved the cold and the snow. You wanted to come and be in the presence of God. You wanted to be where God is and where his people gather, where, where you can be shoulder to shoulder with people who look up and say, Father, and look next to you and say, Brother and Sister. That's why we come on Sunday mornings, to be in the presence of God, and we practice the presence of God by coming to church on Sunday and singing songs together all in one voice to our one God and sitting next to those who we would call siblings in our faith. And we want to live like God is there. And, and Sundays are a good reminder that there is a God in heaven. Because sometimes Sunday afternoon through Saturday night, it's sometimes hard to remember that. Or it's easy to forget, I should I say, that there's lots of distractions available to forget that there is a God and he is really here with us. And even Christmas, the Emmanuel, God with us, is practicing. We take one time a year to really focus and remember God came and was with us and is with us now in the presence of his Holy Spirit. God is there. And when that's true, that changes everything. And so we're going to see that theme today. And we're in the book of Genesis. If you're new here, we just go through the book of Bible. We took a break for Christmas. Um, but today we're in Genesis chapter 40. We'll be covering chapter 40 and 41. And the big idea today, I have it up on a slide for you, really, is that idea of God being there, being here. But the, the specific way we're going to see this flesh out is that when we live like God is there, we are able to be there for others. Like, so if, we, if we, we really practice the presence of God being here with us, it's going to affect how we interact with people around us. It's not going to just change things for us personally, but it's going to bleed out of us and come out of our fingertips and change the way that we interact with others around us. And Joseph, if, just to catch you up to speed since we took a break to celebrate Christmas last week, and for some of you who are new, you're like, why did you celebrate Christmas last week? <laughs> uh, we did that because our college students, we want to celebrate with them, and we have a large uh, college population here. We want them to be able to join in before they head home for the holidays. So that's why we did it last week, but we left Joseph in chapter 39 in prison. That's where we last left Joseph, and uh, at the end of chapter 39, Moses, in writing Genesis, points out many times that Joseph is in prison, but God is with him. And you see that if you read the end verses of Genesis 39, God was with him. God was with him. Moses doesn't want you to forget that God was with him, because Joseph knew that God was with him. And so he wants that to be in your mind, and I want to remind you of that before we plow into the passage today. So chapter 40, let's read the first seven verses. Like I said, we're going to cover chapter 41, 40 and 41 this morning. So sometime after this, so sometime after Joseph was thrown into prison, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt, and Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody, and one night they both dreamed the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison. 
each his own dream, each with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? So the cupbearer and the baker get thrown into prison. We don't know why. It just says that they offended Pharaoh. We don't know what exactly they did. We don't know why they're there. Maybe the, uh, the baker was trying some of this gluten-free nonsense. And, and uh, <laughs> my wife's gluten-free, so I can make that joke. <laughs> uh, maybe he tried that off, and Pharaoh's like, what is this? This is like bread, but it's not bread at all. And it's like, and I don't know what gluten is, but apparently it's like the thing that makes bread taste good. So... <laughs> So maybe he tried that, and he was early on. I mean, you, you know, I remember when gluten-free stuff first came out, how bad it was. They've gotten pretty good now. Like, the gluten-free stuff's pretty good. But just imagine how bad it was back then if he's trying it. So we don't know what they did. We don't know if, like, the cupbearer was buying, you know, wine from, you know, Trader Joe's and trying to pawn it off as the good stuff. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever it is they were doing, they offended Pharaoh. And if you offend Pharaoh, you go to jail. Because in that world, Pharaoh is God. And if you offend God, you go to jail. No questions asked. Don't offend Pharaoh. The last thing you want to do is offend him. So they're there. We don't know why. But they offended Pharaoh. We do know why Joseph is there. Why is Joseph in prison? Well, he's in prison because he was falsely accused of sexual misconduct. Something he didn't do, he was falsely accused, and now he's in prison. Why was he falsely accused? Why was he in that situation? Because he was purchased by a man named Potiphar and made a slave. Why was he a slave? Because his brothers decided rather than murder him, they should throw him in a hole and then sell him to some passers-by. Why did they do that? Because they were jealous of this brother who their dad loved more than the rest of them. So Joseph is in a bad situation, totally unjust. We know exactly why, precisely why he's in prison right now. He's in prison because people were envious of him and took revenge on him, and then he held on to his integrity and refused to commit adultery with Potiphar's wife. And he held close to God, and he lived like God was really with him. And that's why he is in jail, is because he worships God and refuses to compromise that for anybody. And so he is in jail because of that. And yet, so that is why he is there. And yet, did you see what he did? He is the one in prison who has every reason to be down in the dumps. Where is God? What, what's the point of life? If worshiping God gets you here in this situation, what's the point? And yet, he's there serving them. And what does he do? He notices them. He notices other people's pain. And, and so much so, he's attentive that he saw their faces were different. He's used to their faces. He studied them. He knows what their faces look like. He knows how they hold their face when they're in a good mood, when they're in a bad mood. He sees them, and he notices their faces, and he considers their feelings. And he asks, why are your faces downcast today? Because Joseph is aware that God is with him, he's able to look out into other people and not just be consumed with his own problems. Because I don't know if you're like me at all, but when I'm suffering, the last thing I notice is other people. And this is a cold, hard reality that is true and just easily, observably true, that suffering people are often very selfish people. And that sounds hard, and harsh, and you're like, Todd, why are you piling on suffering people? <laughs> They're already suffering, and now you're going to accuse them of being selfish? Yes, because they are, because I know it's true of me. And if I have something as small as a headache, the last thing I can think about is what's going on in your life. I have a headache, it all becomes about my head, and my pain, and my ice pack, and my peace and quiet, and dark. And I don't want to hear about your stub toe. I don't want to hear about your problems. I don't want to hear about your real problems, because right now i got enough stuff of my own going on. Because when we're suffering, we can become, the temptation is to be very selfish. 
because it all becomes about what's going on with me. And the last thing you can think about is, oh, I'm suffering. I bet that's true of other people. I bet other people are like me and that they have hard things going on. I should think about that and ask them and notice their faces. No, we don't do that. We just focus in on ourselves. And at least I do. That's true for me. But when we live like God is there, we're able to look out to other people. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. I have it up on the screens for you. When we are suffering, the suffering is not the only thing there with you. I need you to know that this morning. When you are suffering, when you are going through something difficult, the suffering is not the only thing there with you. It's the most obvious, immediate thing that you can think of. It's no, there's no doubt the pain, the sorrow, the loneliness, the headache, the, the physical pain, the aches. It's all undeniably there with you. But God is there with you too. The suffering is not the only thing there with you. You are not alone. It's not you and your suffering confined to a room. God is there with you. Look at 2 Corinthians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Why is God there with you to comfort you? To help you through your suffering so that you can step outside of yourself, realize that there is still a God in heaven, even though this headache has lasted for hours even though these bills are still sitting there waiting to be paid, even though the sickness and illness is still in that family member, there is a God in heaven. Don't forget that. The suffering is not the only thing that's real. It's not the only thing that's here with you. It's not the only thing that's there. And when you think of that, you're able to realize that God's there, and then you're able to be there for other people. The very comfort you receive from God, you can now extend to other people. Not just that you have the ability to do it, but that you're actually looking to do it. Not just that you could think of other people, but you actually do. You actually take the time to notice people's faces, like Joseph stuck in prison, noticing that somebody else looks sad and being like, oh, well, you said. Like, well, we're all in prison, Joseph, you idiot. <laughs> like, that seems obvious. <laughs> like, but Joseph could have said the same thing. Joseph's in prison too. He could have been like, well, who cares about your stupid thing? I got my stuff going on. I'm in prison too, and I'm not even supposed to be here. I should be at home. I'm my dad's favorite kid. I had a really cool coat. I want to be in prison with you guys. When we live like God is there, we're able to be there for other people. Look at verse 8. We'll go through verse 15. They said to him, so he notices, and so he asks, and so he draws them out. He wants to know what's going on in their life. He asks the real question. So he takes the time to hear the answer. We've had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. Joseph said, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told him, his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blo- its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that should, be, that should put me into the pit. So we see here too, when we live like God is there, we can share good news with other people. Joseph has good news. Like you had a dream, I have good news for you. In three days, you're going to be restored to your position. And Joseph can actually share good news with this person because Joseph is 
aware that God is there with him and in his situation. Joseph knows why he's in prison. And so he's able to enter into other people's good news. If you are in a bad spot, the last thing you want to see is other people on Facebook having a good time. You don't want to enter into it. If you're struggling with infertility, the last thing you want to see is somebody else post on Facebook. Hey, we're having another baby. It's like another one. I don't even have one. Envy will not allow you to enjoy other people's blessings. You can't share in their good news. You can't share with them their happiness. You don't want them to be happy because you're envious, because you'd rather have them not have the thing. And and envy flips God's commands upside down. But God commands you to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Envy turns it around, and so you rejoice when people mourn. Like, I'm glad they got what's coming to them. I'm glad. And it allows you to mourn when things go well with them. Ah, They're having another kid. Oh, that just grinds at me because I don't even have the one I want. When we act like God is there and trust that he's in control, we actually can enter into other people's good news. And so Joseph can, with joy, share this guy, hey, I have good news for you. Three days, you're getting out of this place. I'm going to be stuck here. (laughs) You're getting out. Could you put in a good word for me with the guy who's getting you out? Because I don't really like it here. (laughs) And this is actually good news for us, too. Like, you could be like, well, Joseph is just such an optimist. Maybe he just likes prison. You know, like maybe he just has such a turn your frown upside down kind of attitude that he's like, woo, I can make lemonade out of any lemons you hand me. No, he doesn't like being where he is. Do you see that in the text? Like Joseph doesn't like being in prison. He doesn't like the circumstances that got him there, but yet he's a faithful, God-fearing man in a bad situation because he knows why he is there. He's there because he trusted God. And he trusts God to get him out of that situation in God's good time. And so in the meantime, he's able to share good news and be happy, genuinely happy for other people. You're getting out of prison. That's great news. We should throw a party. You're getting out of prison. So the other guy hears this. He's like, well, that's great. I'd like to, I'd like, sign me up for what he's having. So verse 16, when the chief baker saw the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream since you're just in a good mood handing out good news today. There were three cake baskets on my head and in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating out of the basket on my head. Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. That's not great news. <laughs> That's not the interpretation he was hoping for. He's like, can, we just, can I get the other guy's interpretation? Can I just smuggle some of that into my interpretation? Listen, when, when, we, live, when we live like God is right there, We can share good news, like we saw, but we can also speak hard truths. This is the interpretation of the dream. Joseph could have seen it and been like, I can't tell him that. I can't tell him he's going to lose his head in three days. That's going to ruin, why why would I ruin the next three days of his life? Let him think, let him at least enjoy them. Just tell him happy things, and then he'll die in three days, but at least he'll enjoy the last three days of his life. I mean, you could say that. You could say that about your neighbor. It's like, yeah, they don't believe in Jesus, and I know what I think about what happens to people who don't believe in Jesus, but why ruin it for them? Just let them have fun. Why would I, why would I want to ruin Thanksgiving? Why would I want to ruin Christmas? I just want to sing a song and open some presents. Why ruin this by bringing Jesus into it? When you live like God is right there, you have the ability to share hard truths, hard truths with people. Now, the baker has the opportunity in the next three days to get right with God because he is going to meet his maker in three days. This is actually, it's bad news, but it's actually an opportunity for him. Now, if that's really true, if people are really going to meet their maker, telling them that is the best thing you could do for them, because now they can prepare to meet 
the God they're about to in three days. Because three days, like it or not, he's going to meet God. And so Joseph is now given this person out of love, actually saying this thing might sound harsh. Like, why tell him he's going to lose his head? That seems mean. And it's Christmas. <laughs> Don't say mean things at Christmas. Don't say hard things. The best thing he could have told him is that in three days you're about to meet God. You should get ready for that. This guy now has the opportunity to take advantage of those three days and get right with God, even while stuck in prison. So verse 20 through 23, we'll see, is, is Joseph just blowing smoke, or does he actually know what he's talking about? On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, woo birthday, all right, he made a feast for all of his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He's like, oh, that's my birthday, I'm feeling, feeling happy. Let's, let's get these people out of prison. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, just like Joseph said. But he hanged the chief baker because of that gluten-free stuff. As Joseph had interpreted to them, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. One little detail thrown in there. Everything went just like Joseph said, except for the one guy forgot about the guy in prison who interpreted his dream. Exactly, precisely what would happen. He forgot about the guy who said, and what was his one request? Please remember me. I don't want to be here. I don't like being here. When you get out, could you please remember me? We see the inverse of the principle we've been talking about this morning, when you don't live like God is there. So what's the opposite of that? We've been talking about living like God is there. When you don't live like God is there, we live like we are God. There will be a God. Is it the one who reigns above who made you, the one who made everything, or is it you? There will be a God. Somebody has final veto power. Somebody decides your calendar, your wallet, your online clicks. Somebody's deciding those decisions. Something is driving that. Something monitors that. Is it you? Who has the final veto power? Who has the final say? Is it God above or you? If you don't live like God is there, you live like you are God. You make the final call. You make the final call on what, what people say about what's going on. You make the final call about what's going on with you. And this guy, self-absorbed in his own world, was suffering. Joseph noticed him. Asked him, drew him out. He told him his problems. Joseph gave him good news, said three days. You're going to be restored. Please remember me. And he's restored, just like Joseph said. And he forgets about Joseph. Why? Because Joseph's a side character in this story. Joseph's some character that was introduced in chapter 2, and who knows why he's even there. I'm the main character of my story. The story follows me around. And once Joseph is off stage, who remembers Joseph? Joseph who? And when we don't live like God is there, we are quick to forget that there are other people on the stage. They are living their own life. They have their stories going on. It's not just, you are not the main character of all of life. You're not even the main character of your own story when you live like God is there. God is the main character of your story at all times. But when we forget that God is there, we become our main character. And it's easy then to explain, well, how does this guy forget about Joseph? Well, who cares about Joseph? This story isn't about Joseph. It's about me. Chapter 41, verse 1. After two whole years... <laughs> So he didn't just forget about him for like, oh, right. He's not standing in front of the fridge a week later. I'm like, oh, right, Joseph, that guy in prison. Two years, two years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. 
So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, and when there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh, the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Oh, I remember my offenses today, two years later. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants, you can see why he probably doesn't want to bring this up. Remember that time you were mad at me and threw me in jail? I can see why he doesn't want to bring it up, I guess, like because it might happen again. But remember that time you did that? Ugh, please don't do that again. Um, when you put me in the custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted it to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So to get you caught up in speed, Joseph has been in prison for 13 years at this point. 13 years of being in jail for something he did not do. And he wasn't just in jail for any years. He was in jail in his 20s. For those of you who are in your 20s, how many of you are in your 20s? This is the best it will ever be for you. (laughs) You will never be more attractive, have more energy, have more like, I can do it, than you do right now. He didn't just spend some years of his life in jail. He spent arguably the best years of a person's life. His entire 20s are spent in jail for a crime he did not commit. 20 years just languishing there. This strong, attractive man just sitting there languishing with all these skills and talents just stuck in prison. And he finally gets a chance after all that. He gets summoned to the king of the entire world. Somebody who who he's seen him take people in his similar position and get them out. He's seen that happen. He knows that this guy can get him out of this situation. And so he finally, he's in the presence of this guy. He gets summoned and he says, hey, I've heard that you can do some cool, you know, tricks with dreams and stuff. Can you do that for me? Like, here's his chance to get out. And what does Joseph say? It is not in me. I can't do what you're asking. How badly does Joseph want to be out of prison right now? Badly. He's given an opportunity. And what's his response? Literally in Hebrew, it's it's one word. He just says, can't. He literally just says one word in Hebrew, can't. But I know someone who can. I can't do the thing you're asking. I am not God. But he's right here with me, and I know him. Maybe we should ask him. He seems like he might have some answers for both of us. Joseph does not, just if his whole motivation in life was to get out of a bad situation, he could make up something. Like, who knows what Pharaoh's dream means? I don't know, as long as it includes the number seven, I'm guessing you're close. It's like, it seems like seven's important, I don't know. Like, just make something up. Like, if you're just trying to get out of a bad situation, here's your chance. Just make something up. Just, and don't even, why even let him think that there's a chance you might not know what you're talking about? Come in there, like, all proud, and, like, I've done this twice before. I, I clearly have a gift. It's in me. I can do this. But Joseph doesn't do that because when we live like God is there, we can say, I can't, but God can. Can you say that? Can you say, I can't? Is there anything that if somebody were to ask you to do, you could say, I can't? And, and in humility say it, not I can't, you know, because, like, I don't want to deal with it, but I can't. I don't know how to do what you're asking. It's out of my control. I don't have it in me. 
Because the narrative we're taught is just dig deep, reach down inside, and you can find the energy. You can find the strength. It's in you. You just have to believe in it because it's in there somewhere. Believe in yourself. It's deep down in there. And if you just dig deep enough, you can do it. And if you can't find it, the problem is you. You're just not trying hard enough because it's in there somewhere. Dig down. That's what the world has to sell because they don't have a God to look to. They can't look up. There is no God up there for them. There is no God to look to. So the only place you have to look is inside. And if you can't find it there, then you better figure it out because the rest of us are figuring it out just fine. We're pulling it off. When you live like God is there and you believe that God is real, you can say, I can't do what you're asking, even though it would be very advantageous for me to be able to do that kind of thing right now. I can't, but I know someone who can. Can you do that? Do you have the ability to look and be like, I can't be perfect. I can't, I can't, I, I, I can't do what even I wish I could do. I can't be the moral person I wish I could be. I fall short. I can't be who I even want to be. I need somebody. I need help. When we live like God is there, we can admit and confess that we can't, and we can say with confidence, God can. You don't have to pretend like you can anymore, and you don't have to despair that you can't. It's not just, I can't, I can't, and that's why I'm just a mess. It's like, I can't, but I don't despair because I know someone who can, and to him I look. I don't look in. I look up. When things get hard, I look up and I realize I'm not alone. I'm not alone in this suffering. Somebody's there with me. The suffering is not the only thing that's real. So verses 17 through 24, Pharaoh relays. I'm not going to read it all, but he relays the exact same dream. He just tells Joseph, here's the dream I had. Verse 25, let's pick it up. Joseph then said to Pharaoh, the dreams that Pharaoh had are one. So Pharaoh, remember, had two dreams, both of them involving seven and a cow and and grain. And so he said, "The, the dreams you've had are one dream. It's the same thing. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The plenty, the plenty is going to be good, but the, the bad is going to be so bad that people will forget how good it even was. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow. The famine is going to be so severe that you will forget that it was ever, ever good at all, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. When we live like God is there... We can say to other people, we can say to them, you can't, but God can. Pharaoh has a problem here. He's about to experience a famine in his kingdom. He doesn't know it, but God's wanting to tell him that in advance. Pharaoh has another problem. Pharaoh thinks that he's God. In that world, in the Egyptian world, Pharaoh was God. He was literally God. People bowed to him and prayed to him, a person. And so he was under the impression that he was God. And something was about to happen that was completely out of his hands, that he had no ability to change or affect. And he was going to have a problem on his hands. And so Joseph is looking at him and saying, Pharaoh, there's going to be seven years of famine coming up. It's going to be bad after seven years of plenty. But the biggest problem is, is that you are not God. And there's nothing you can do about it. See how often like Joseph inserts God into the story. God has revealed to Pharaoh. God has shown. The thing is fixed by God. God will bring it about shortly. This thing is going to happen because there is a God and he said so. And there's nothing you can do to stop it, Pharaoh. So in humility, 
can you submit yourself to what God is about to do? And instead of rejecting it and saying, no, I will fix it. I will make sure that that can't happen. That can't be my future. I refuse to accept that reality. Can you just say, okay, God's God. So what are we supposed to do? Can you just repent and and align yourself with what God is saying is true? This is going to happen. This is the way the world is. Can you stop imposing your will upon it, thinking that you're going to pull that off and just say, all right, I will receive my future from God. Whatever God has for me, it's his, and I'm just going to fall in line. Can I do that? And so Joseph tells him, if you want to repent, you want to fall in line with God, here's what you do. And he gives him specific repentance. Here's what it would look like, Pharaoh. For example, if you were wanting to say, I'm not God, here's what I would do. Verse 33, now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it in Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck and made him ride in his second chariot. And they called before him, bow the knee, thus set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's names Zephaneth Paniah. There's a good baby name for those of you who are pregnant, Zephaneth Paniah. And he gave him in marriage to Asenath. So if you're having a girl, Asenath would be the other name. Uh, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, just like God told Joseph it would. And he gathered up all the food for these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities, just like Joseph said would be smart to do. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. The plentiful years are so plentiful that there is just grain everywhere. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Things happened just like Joseph said. And because Pharaoh recognized Joseph's wisdom, he put him in charge. Joseph put into a specific plan of what it would look like to live in the reality that God is really there and he's going to do exactly what he said he's going to do. He lines himself up under that and things go well. They have extra food. And Pharaoh promotes Joseph all the way up to the second highest position in all of Egypt. Because when we live like God is there, other people will notice. If you live like God is right next to you, people around you will notice. Now, you can't control how they will respond to that. You're not, you, don't, you can't control what they will do with that information. But when we live like God is there, other people will notice. In this case, Pharaoh promoted him. He said, who else can we find that has the spirit of God in him like this guy? We should promote him. Because you can't control how people will respond to your closeness with God. You can't control that. You can, 
be close to God, but you can't control that, but you can control whether it's something they have to respond to. <laughs> when people deal with you, do they have to deal with God? You see, that real to you, that for them to interact with you means that they are interacting with the God who's right there next to you. You can't control what they will do with that. They might persecute you, they might love you, they might promote you, they might put you in prison. You can't control what they do with that information, but you can control whether it's something they have to deal with. Is God that real to you that people are forced to deal with God if they deal with you? Or do they have the out? Are they, are you, do you, is, your, is your relationship with God so compartmentalized that they could interact with you and never even know that you're a Christian? If they were to find out you were here at church this morning, it would shock them. Not because you're such a bad dude or such a bad lady. It just had never occurred to them to think about it because it's never come up before. They've known you for years, sat next to you. Maybe they are the cubicle down the road. You see them at the water cooler at work. They have no idea that you're a Christian. They have no idea that any of this means anything to you at, at all. Because when they deal with you, they don't have to deal with God. Because you don't live like he's right there. But when you live like he's right there, you force people to deal with God. Because you do all the time. You never act like he's not there. Joseph never did. That's what got him into prison. He lived like God was there. Remember when Potiphar's wife was trying to seduce him? She said, you know, come lay with me. Like, and she was urgent about it. And he's like, how could I do such a thing to God? Not just Potiphar, not your husband, but God. God's the one who's here right now. And I don't want to offend him. Why would I do that to him? I love him. Why would I do that to him? Let alone your husband, let alone you. How could I abuse you or your husband or God that way? Because God is right here. And when you live like that, people will notice. And in Joseph's case, it got him thrown into prison. But it also got him promoted because he lived consistently like God was there. Verses 53, 57. Let's finish out the passage. Seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all lands. But in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to all the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, notice this detail, moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Joseph is in a position, through his wisdom, through his repentance, through his living like God was there, living like God is going to be there, just like he said he's going to, in the exact same way he said he's going to be there in the future. He's in a position now to help other people. God gave Joseph power and authority and seven years of things going awesome. Imagine if God were to give you that. What would you do with seven years of power, authority, and everything goes your way? How would you spend those seven years? What would you do with that right now? If you can imagine that. What does Joseph do? He uses it to store up, to save, to set aside in order to save the world. Not just himself, not just his own country, but the entire nations were able to come to him because he, in his wisdom, built and stored and did not just spend on himself and get a better chariot with spinning rims. He saved up for others. There's grain for other people because he didn't use it all himself. He didn't have lavish parties and said, let's go crazy. We got all this stuff. Who cares about the future? Who cares about other people? We got enough for me. We got enough for now. He doesn't live for now. He doesn't just live for himself. 
He lives for later. He lives for God. He stores up for others because when you live like God is there, you're able to be there for other people. You can actually orient your life around what would it look like to leverage my strengths for the good of other people? What if it were really for God's glory and the good of my neighbor that I was doing everything? What would that look like for me to do that? So all the earth comes to Joseph. Why? Because there's only one place to be saved. The famine is so severe that you die if you do not come to Joseph. There's bread only in one spot. And Pharaoh says, don't talk to me, talk to Joseph. There's one man you have to get through to get to where the abundance is. One man, Joseph. And so in Joseph, in this story, buried back in thousand years, long time ago, Moses wrote this, we see a big arrow pointing forward to Jesus. Back then, all this, Joseph is a type of Christ who would to come, who would to come. And we see that. Wrapping up the big idea, tying a bow on all of it. When we live like God is there, we are able to be there for others. Just like Joseph did for Egypt, just like Jesus did for us. Jesus had all power, all authority, and everything could go his way in terms of he could, he could make life go the way he wanted to. He said in, in, in John that nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. Nobody's forcing my hand to do anything. Nobody's ever made Jesus do anything. Everything he does, he does because he wants to. And so that means when he went to a cross and died, it's because he wanted to. Roman soldiers did not overpower Jesus. A political corrupt system did not conspire against Jesus in such a way that he had no ability to fight back. Jesus called his shots and did everything he wanted to because he had all power, all authority, and he had legions of angels at his disposal, and he chose to do what he did because he lived for others. Because he lived like God was there with him, he was able to be there for other people. Because why was Jesus on the cross? Was it for his own sin? No. He didn't have sin to die for. He was there for our sin. He was there to provide abundance so that people who are starving and famine out there searching for bread, who can't find it, would have somewhere to go. But there's only one place to find bread. Just like in those days, if you didn't come to Egypt... And then come to Joseph, there was no bread outside of that man in that place. Today in Columbia, Missouri, there is bread nowhere else than in heaven through Jesus. There's bread. There's no bread anywhere else. You will not find it. It's through him and through him alone. And he has died in our place for our sin and rose from the dead for our justification so that through him, if you come to him, you have access to God's plenty. This land of famine that we live in, there is bread and all this thirst that we see everywhere with people floundering in thirst and famine, wearing thin, gaunt, there is abundance available to you. And it's all in the hands of the Father who will give it to us through faith in Jesus. So Joseph points us ahead to Jesus. And we respond to that. We're going to see today baptism. And we have communion. So baptism. When, when those people came to Egypt, they came to a place where things were already stored up. They didn't do any of the work. They just came and all the bread was there available for them. All they had to do was ask. Baptism is a symbol of people coming to this, saying, like, I'm not doing any of this. This is Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, and I'm with that thing. The only thing I bring to this is the body I lay down to die in the water. Everything else is him. This is, a, this is water that I didn't make. I didn't turn the faucet on this morning and put this in here. And even if you did, where'd the water come from? God, this is water that's provided for you. And for those of us who have been baptized, we will have the chance after, after baptism to respond in communion, to come to a table you did not set, 
to bread you did not make, to a body that you did not lay down in death. We come to a table prepared for us, just like Joseph worked hard and prepared all of that abundance for anyone who would come to him. Anyone who would come could ask Joseph and receive. Anyone who comes to this table and asks Jesus can receive forgiveness, his death in your place, his life for yours. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reality that you are here. Thank you that when I get into the van with my family on Sunday mornings and we do our rehearsal and our liturgy of saying where are we going to church and why are we going there to worship God with our people, we know that you are really here, but you're not just here. Praise God that you're not just here for an hour on a Sunday morning. You are everywhere in our lives. You are in that van as we started up on a cold Sunday morning. You are in that cubicle on a boring Tuesday afternoon. You're watching us right there when we're on Facebook on a Thursday night. You are everywhere. Help us to live like that's true. We don't have to pretend like you're really there. We don't have to ask the question, what would it look like if I lived life like God was real and he was actually there? You are real and you are there. Help us to orient our lives in such a way as to live in reality of that. Thank you for this example of Joseph, who's such a good example. And it seems almost, like honestly looking at it, it seems too good to be true. It seems like, I, I don't want to, I don't know if I could do that. Joseph seems like a really stellar guy. and Maybe he's just a, a unique saint that, that gives us inspiration, uh, but there's no, re- there's no way I could actually hope to be like Joseph. If we aim at Joseph, we will fall short. We probably won't be like Joseph because Joseph isn't the point, and Joseph would be offended that we were aiming at him. God, help us to aim at you. When we put our faith and hope in you, we might just find ourselves acting more like Joseph. If we aim at Joseph, we'll all fall short and wish that we were better people. When we look to you, God, we will find ourselves growing in Christ-likeness and humble the entire time able to say, I can't, but you can, and able to tell other people the same good news, to share in their good news, to tell them hard things, even when it's really hard, but to glorify you for the good of our neighbor and for our own personal growth. And so we thank you for your word, how it instructs us. Help us to walk in light of that, to conform ourselves to your reality, and to leave this place different people because you are really here. In your name we pray. Amen.